Uh, when, when, when I was four years old, um, I, I sat down and I wrote down everything that I wanted to accomplish in my life. Um, and so I got a pen um, and I wrote down the one thing as a four-year-old that I wanted to do most in this life. I wanted to be a train driver. <laughs> Thomas the Tank was my hero. Um, and I really actually wanted to be like the Fat Controller too. That's, that's his actual name in the show. Um, and so, yeah, I, that, that's the only thing that I wanted to do in my life. I wanted to be a train driver. I didn't know it at the time, but we do these things as well. Um, they're called bucket lists. Um, a bucket list is a list of all the things that you want to do before you kick the bucket, uh, before you die. Um, in a famous uh, 2007 movie called The Bucket List, uh, Morgan Freeman and, and Jack Nicholson play uh, two different people who are brought together by a terminal illness. Um, both of these um, guys have been diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. Um, they don't have long to live. Um, and so they try and tick off as many things as they can from their bucket list. They go skydiving, they race cars, they eat at the most famous restaurant in France, they fly over the North Pole, they visit the Taj Mahal. You might not have a bucket list exactly like this, uh, but many of us will have expectations or will have hopes of what we'll accomplish or what we'll experience before we die. You know, perhaps you've always wanted to have a house of your own. You've wanted to fall in love, go on a round-the-world uh, trip to all these exotic holiday destinations. Maybe it's learning a new language, or maybe it's retiring early to pursue a passion. Well, because we know our time on earth is kind of limited, so we kind of need to kind of get going on these things, right? But you see, when we build a bucket list, what we're really saying is by the end of your life, what will define your life? What will matter? So today we're going to see that there's one thing that needs to define your life. And there's one thing that we need to see before we die. And that's what will be revealed to us today. Firstly, salvation is revealed. You know, as we trace through the life of Jesus, here we pick up with uh, Jesus' parents bringing uh, the baby Jesus to Jerusalem to dedicate him to the Lord in the temple. Um, and in verse 22, they also come for Mary's purification. Uh, this happens when a woman would give birth to a firstborn child. So for her purification, Mary has to offer sacrifices at the temple. That's what the law required. But notice in verse 24, if you look there, they sacrifice a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. They're clearly not a rich family because they're actually not able to afford to sacrifice a lamb, so they sacrifice birds instead. Jesus isn't born into wealth. And at the temple in Jerusalem, now we're introduced to Simeon, uh, who's described in verse 25 as righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. And it's been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Simeon is waiting for the consolation or the comfort of Israel. Uh, in verse 51, God promises to comfort his people where they'd been oppressed, they'd been beaten down, they'd been suffering through exile of their nation. God promises that he's coming for them. 
And so until now, they wait. Remember, they've got an oppressive leader in Herod, who out of fear and and jealousy tries to kill baby Jesus, who was hailed the king. And when this Herod, he can't kill Jesus, he instead kills all the infant boys in the whole region, out of his anger. Now you see, Israel are living under a leader who commits mass genocide against his people. And when you look around the world, when you see people suffering under oppressive leaders who terrorize their people, even today, you start to get an insight into how God's people would have felt, why they really needed comfort and consolation. And so the Holy Spirit here reveals to Simeon that he's not going to die until he sees their Savior, until he sees the one who will bring comfort to Israel. Simeon has one thing on his bucket list. I wonder how many of you have salvation on your bucket list? How many of your hopes in this life are bound up into God's plans, in His plans for the world? Or as you think about this list of all the things that you want to do, are they, do they more revolve around you and the experiences that you want? In Luke's Gospel, the temple is very significant because it's where the hopes of the nation lie. If God comes to meet His people in the temple, then it would be from the temple that He would come to meet them and rescue them again. So Simeon, he's led by the Holy Spirit into the temple, and at the very same time now, Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to dedicate Him to the Lord in the temple. And as soon as Simeon sees Jesus here, he knows that this is the moment he's been waiting for his whole life. So he takes um, the baby Jesus into his arms and he blesses God and he says in verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people. This is the moment where God reveals to him that God himself has come to save. It's actually a remarkable scene, if you think about it. It's an old man staring at a baby, and he exclaims, My eyes have seen your salvation. He sees salvation not in a rule, or a concept, or a scheme. He sees salvation in a person. And as we look at Jesus, we see all of God's plans for His world reaching their culmination. And we know salvation's now not something for us to do. It was never that. It was something that Jesus will provide. And now Simeon says, now I can die happy because my eyes have seen your salvation. Salvation's the one thing that Simeon needs to see before he dies. But the salvation revealed here is actually a little bit more than they bargained for because where Simeon's eyes have seen salvation, who is that salvation for? Look at verse 32. It's a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Imagine being an an Israelite here, oppressed by a foreign nation, who treat you as second-class citizens, who limit your rights, and then your Saviour comes 
And he says, I haven't just come for you, I've also come for them. That's what Simeon's prophesying here. He's saying the Messiah is not coming just to save the Jews. No, he's coming to save the Romans, the Gentiles, the world. Remember to these Jews, these Gentiles are seen as unclean, hostile, enemies of God. They worship other gods. I mean, even Simeon himself is waiting for the consolation for Israel. But now he prophesies that salvation will be revealed to everyone. That's why Christianity has always had at its, at its heart a thrust towards the nations. It's why across culture we've invested so much in global mission. Uh, people like Abby who are training and being prepared to be raised to support and, and send the gospel to the ends of the earth. Because Jesus came for everyone. There are all people around the world that have never heard this name of Jesus. Because Jesus has come to be a light to the nations, now we must go to them. And for some of you, that might mean you need to consider being a cross-cultural missionary yourself. And if that's you, we'd really love to talk to you about that and how as we as a church can support you to prepare and be raised up for that. But even if you haven't considered it, we can all still be involved in cross-cultural missions, whether it's committing to pray for one of our global partners, whether it's setting aside some money to give to the work of global missions, whether it's giving uh, to something like Abigail's internship. Because this is actually a very, very key part of Luke, that the gospel is always from the outside in. The people from the outside, the poor, the, the outcast, the Gentile, they are the ones that are included in God's plan of salvation. And of course, salvation will also mean glory for the people Israel, because it's through Jesus that all the promises, all the hopes they had in the Old Testament, where they'll find their fulfillment. God's plans begin with Israel, but they were never meant to terminate on Israel. No, it would start here, and then it would expand to the whole world. That was always God's plan. It's a quote from Isaiah 49, where God says, I will make you, Israel, a light to the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. All these plans that God has for the world can be seen in this child. Where Simeon sees Jesus, he sees salvation in its entirety. This means everything to him. Where Simeon's seen Jesus, every detail in his life's resume are irrelevant. I wonder what will define your life. Is it your achievements? Maybe it's your ATAR score, your university degree, your job. Is it your family? Maybe it's even the good things that we've done, all the people that we've helped, all the ministries that we've served in. But in light of Jesus, in light of salvation, all these things fade to the background. Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul says, I count everything as loss. Very beginning that the gospel would go to the Gentiles. And now here we are, we're all Gentiles, I think, hearing God's word, worshipping him together, seeing salvation revealed right here. So we are actually proof of Simeon's prophecy what we are right now, that Jesus is a light 
that draws in the nations. Well, Mary and Joseph, they can't help but be amazed at this in verse 33. I mean, Simeon's just prophesied about what's in store for their child. But that's not all. Which brings us to our next point, that Jesus doesn't just reveal salvation, but Jesus will reveal our hearts. Imagine if you were Jesus' parents, and just think about how proud, how excited you'd be as you think about what this child would mean for the world. That he'd bring glory to his people, that he'd save the whole world. As a, ch- as a parent, you'd be overjoyed. But where Mary's heart must be through the roof here, her heart is about to break. It's because of what Simeon says to her next. He says in verse 34, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. Where many nations will come to see and embrace salvation, not everyone will. Jesus will divide even his own people. Some will rise, some will fall, some will love him, and some will hate him. In Isaiah 8, God himself says that he will be a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. And sure enough, when Jesus comes, he will divide the nation. Even his own people will oppose him. And that's what we'll see as we keep tracking through this book of Luke. The irony is it's the Gentiles, it's God's enemies that love him. But it's often his own people who hate him. Even today, you know, Jesus divides opinion. Um, Often, you know, when you ask people about a person that you both know, generally the things you say about a person or you hear about a person are generally consistent. Um, So take Pastor Sandy, most people will say, you know, Pastor Sandy, he's a lovely guy. He's a great guy, he's a bit of a teddy bear, (laughs) right? (laughs) So generally what people will say about someone's pretty accurate, pretty consistent. So it's weird then in the one person, Jesus, that you get such opposing viewpoints on the one person. Even here today, some of us might say, you know, Jesus was a good person, but maybe he was flawed like the rest of us. Others of you might say, Jesus is the single biggest cause of all the world wars, all the division and conflict in this world. Others might say, well, Jesus is the greatest person who ever lived. And I think the reason that Jesus is so divisive is not because of the way he lived or the person that he was, but by the message that he brought. It's this message that he is the way, he is the truth and the life, that there's no other way to the Father, that it's only through Jesus that you can be saved. There's no other way. It's a message of repentance, to leave behind your old life and to follow him instead. And even as we sit here now, that might make you feel uncomfortable. And it should. We should expect it. Jesus will always divide. If Jesus has never confronted your opinions or your worldview, well, then you've probably never really met him. You never really understood who he claimed to be. 
In verse 35, Simeon prophesies that through Jesus, the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. Jesus hasn't just come to reveal salvation. He's come to reveal you. He's come to reveal the state of your heart. In the Bible, that the heart is more than just the emotions or our feelings, but it's the very core of who we are. It's who we really are on the inside. So while Jesus has come to save, He will also come to reveal what is truly in you. And how you treat Jesus will reveal the state of your relationship with God. If you love Jesus, you love God. If you reject Jesus, you hate God. When we were talking before about what defines your life, Simeon says here, how you relate to Jesus will define everything. If you're anything like me, I, I suspect some of you here might find it very comfortable to do the Christian thing. That we come to church, we, we serve in various ministries, we attend our life groups, which is all good and important things for us to do. But how would you actually evaluate the state of your relationship with Jesus? Do you really love Him? Through the day, do we really depend on God in prayer? When we really need God, when we really need wisdom, do we sit at His feet, listen to His Word? You know, sometimes we can do all the right Christian stuff on the outside, but ultimately, it's your relationship with Jesus that will define everything. And so some will rise in faith and trust in Jesus, and others will fall in their rejection of Him. Because Jesus has come to reveal our hearts. When my mum uh, gave birth to me in hospital, um, the very first thing the nurse said to my mum about me was that I had a face only a mother could love. <laughs> That's so cruel. <laughs> I mean, I was a baby. If I knew anything, I'd be hurt, you know? And imagine my mom. I feel so sorry for her. <laughs> well, imagine as, as you held your baby in your arms that someone told you that your beautiful baby would be treated badly, that your baby would be hated by some, and the way this child of yours will be treated in verse 35 will be like a sword that pierces through your soul. Although Jesus has come to reveal salvation, it will lead him down a path of suffering. They say there's nothing more heartbreaking than watching your child suffer. And that's exactly what Mary will have to endure. Mary's going to see her precious child rejected, tortured, nailed to a cross. Mary will be there as her child takes her, his last breath. Mary will have to bury her own son. And now Mary's in the temple. Mary's offering a sacrifice for her purification. 
And what she'll come to realize is that it's her own son who will be the ultimate sacrifice for the purification of the world. It will be Jesus who will be that light to the nations by experiencing the darkness of death for himself. And she'll realize that this sword that's going to pierce through her soul will be the very means of salvation for the world. It's Christ crucified that will define your life. That's what purifies us. That's what brings us into relationship with God. It'll define our life regardless of achievements. It'll define our life regardless of loss and pain. And that's what Mary will need to realize. At the end of our passage in verse 36, we meet a prophetess called Anna. All we know about Anna is that she lived with her husband for seven years, but since then she lives as a widow. Um, She lives by herself until she's 84 years old. But even though she's lived with loss for the most part of her life, she too has only one thing on her bucket list. She's been worshipping, fasting, praying in the temple, waiting for her Lord. And as she sees this child, who will reveal salvation to the world, she can't stop thanking God for what she's seen. She can't stop telling people about this child, about that she's seen the one thing that will define her life. There's only one thing you need to see before you die. And that's to see salvation in Jesus Christ. To know Him and to love Him. And it means that all these things that can preoccupy our minds, our goals, our experiences, even our worries, all of these things can pale in significance to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Like Anna, our lives are not defined by what's missing. We shouldn't look at ourselves and think of all the things that we lack. That's not what life is about. Life's not about just fitting in all the experiences, ticking off a bucket list of all the things that we want to do before we die. No, life is about going deeper and deeper into the joy and reality of the one thing that means everything. And like Anna now, we can give our lives to this one singular goal of knowing Christ, seeing His salvation, and making him known. Nabil Qureshi uh, was a very devout Muslim. Um, He was one day confronted with the claims of the Bible. And so as he read the Bible, as he looked for the historical evidence about Jesus, he became convinced that Jesus was his God and his Saviour. He was attending medical school at the time and he was completing his degree but, he, but after meeting Christ, he decides to spend his whole life studying and preaching God's Word instead of becoming a doctor. It's an amazing story. Nabil uh, becomes a Christian apologist. Um, he speaks at conferences and universities all around the world about the truth of Jesus. Um, he even published a book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus that won a Christian book award in 2015. But at just 33 years old, Nabil is diagnosed with stage 4 stomach cancer. 
as you think about this tragedy, and it is a tragedy, you might mourn all these lost opportunities that Nabil had to continue his life's work. Perhaps it was continuing to work as a famous apologist or writing more books or continuing to engage people with the truth of Christianity. Well, Nabil sadly passed away at just 34 years old. This is what was written about Nabil shortly after his passing. Today, today, Nabil Qureshi, beholding his Saviour face to face, is able to declare what is true. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. With all his abilities, all his accomplishments, with all that was still yet to be done in his life, at the end of his life, only one thing mattered. That was knowing Christ and seeing salvation in the face of Jesus. Maybe today as you evaluate your life, maybe God has revealed to you salvation. He's shown you His Son, who was sacrificed for you so that you could be made pure. Well, in a moment, we're going to have an opportunity to trust in this salvation for ourselves. Or maybe today Jesus has revealed to you the state of your heart. That we don't treat Jesus as He deserves. Maybe our hearts are more preoccupied by the things of this world than with Christ Himself. And so as we pray, we too will have an opportunity to admit this to God and ask Him for an all-consuming desire for His Son, Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we look to your Son, Jesus, we see salvation. Lord, we see here a beautiful child who would one day suffer for us so that we could be made clean. Lord Jesus, we, we trust you alone for salvation. We trust that only you can restore us and free us from our guilt. Save us. Help us to trust in you even through loss and pain. Jesus, we're sorry that our lives are so preoccupied by the things of this world other than you. We're sorry for the times we ignore you and fill our lives with things that just won't last. Lord, would our lives be defined by a single, all-consuming love for your Son in response to seeing your salvation. In Jesus' name, Amen.